Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Church of Christ, where our goal is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. It's good to see me too, thanks. All right. If you're joining us online, we're glad to have you joining us too. Um, have you ever been excluded from something, some group that you wanted to be a part of, or some outing you wanted to be a part of? Anybody else ever been excluded by, uh, from something? Yeah, I, I remember um, this was one of the painful ones back when my family moved from the north side of Fort Wayne down to the south side of Fort Wayne to move into Waynedale. Um, shortly after that, right, like I realized I didn't have any friends in the area, um, and one of the, the there's a park very close to where I grew up and I decided that one day and I was a I was a shy kid uh, as a kid and so I, I decided I got up enough courage to go down to the park and I was gonna try and make some friends right and I was gonna ask some some kids there if I could play with them I think they were playing basketball and so I walked up there had enough courage to do it and put myself out there and asked if I could play with them and Unfortunately, their response was not favorable. Uh, they said no, and they also bullied me and made fun of me. Uh, have you ever been excluded from a group that you wanted to be a part of? Um, you know, I want to introduce you to someone today. His name is Matthew, and he's been excluded a time or two in his life. He's the, the one who's, been, who's ri- written what we've been reading in the gospel account of Matthew. And uh, I think there's something that the Lord will give us and show us today in our time together that hopefully, like, uh, for those of us in this room, when you think about the course of your life and you think about your past, and when you look at your past, you, you uh, have some regrets. Um, you have some moments where you wish you could do things differently. You got some guilt. You got some shame. You've got some sin in your past. Um, I hope and pray that the Lord is going to do a work in you because I want you to know that Jesus has power over your past. And uh, that's what I believe he's going to show us today. So if you have your Bible, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 9 and continue the account. And we're getting to the point where now Matthew is going to introduce himself into the story that Jesus has been living as he's uh, telling it. So Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, this is what Matthew writes. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man <clears throat> named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, <clears throat> many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So there's a lot of things going on right now. in this scene in the Gospels. Um, And it's really important for us to do a little bit of cultural, historical nerding out a little bit so that we understand the kind of thing that's happening underneath the, the narrative. So, so Jesus is walking along the town and he comes across this man named Matthew. 
um, and he's sitting at a toll booth. Now, understand this, in first century uh, Judaism, in the first, central, first century, um, Israel was under Roman occupation. So the Roman Empire by this time in the first century had risen to power, and they were the most powerful empire of the known world. There were no, there's no one at this time that was going to be able to go against Rome and win. And so Rome would continue to spread uh, their empire across the world. And uh, they had come across the ancient Near East and Israel and had decided to take them over. And it wasn't a whole lot of a fight. And so Rome was now occupying the, Isra- the Israelites, the Jews. And so now they were able to still be their own people. They still had the temple and they still had uh, the Sanhedrin, was, which was their kind of like court system, but they, didn't, they were stripped of a lot of their power. And now, as people who are now occupied by Rome, um, you had these taxes that were due to Rome as someone, as a group of people, as a country that was occupied by Rome. There, there's just a, a fascinating amount of taxes that there were due. And uh, I know, like, I know you, and I know how you are, like, when it comes to taxes, we don't like it, right? Well, can you imagine if you were not only just paying taxes and paying an exorbitant amount of them, but you were not even paying them to your own government, but to an enemy nation government? That's what the first century Jews were dealing with. So here's some of the taxes that they would have had to, to pay. They had taxes on the produce of the field. So if they had a field and they were farmers, um, they would get taxed on whatever that field produced. They would also be uh, taxed on items they bought and items they sold. Um, so even if you're on marketplace and selling like a, like a, like a, a bike or whatever it is that you've got to sell, you'd be taxed on that. <clears throat> There was a land tax, so any kind of land that you owned, you'd have to pay taxes on that. There was a poll tax, a kind of progressive income tax that they had to pay. There was a tax on personal property, just the stuff that you got. So hoarders, right, they would be paying a lot. Um, and that might have dealt with that kind of tendency. Um, and then in Jerusalem itself, there was also an additional house tax that they had to pay. And these, this, again, all these taxes were paid directly to Rome. And so in order to, to make this work, right, the machinery of the Roman Empire, they had to um, hire out different uh, like kind of public office, which was either called the publicans or tax collectors. Different translations translated differently. It's the same thing. They're talking about the same thing. So they had hierarchies within the tax system so that the Rome, Roman Empire could continue to expand and uh, continue to thrive financially. And they did that very well. And so they hired, uh, they had like people like Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. So he was the head honcho and he would go out and he was responsible for collecting all the taxes inside of a region. So he would hire different tax collectors, someone like Matthew, to actually do the work of collecting the taxes. So uh, tax collectors were typical um, that they would not only collect the taxes that they were required for them to collect, but they would also collect additional money from the people. And the people had no power to argue or, or object to that. They just had to pay what they had to pay unless they wanted some trouble with some Roman soldiers. And if you're a, a Jewish person, like unless you're a zealot, you probably aren't interested in having that kind of a problem with those kinds of people. And so people didn't like the tax collectors, especially Jewish tax collectors, because as I've said before, uh, Matthew was a Jewish man and he had basically committed treason against his country by becoming a tax collector. 
I have to stand back here. Okay. Um, so the, the, here's the thing. In first century Jew, Judaism, they also had a class system. So there were specific kinds of people that if you were that kind of person, you could be with those kinds of people. But if you were a part of, uh, if you wanted to be a part of this group of people, you couldn't because it was a class system. So what you were from the beginning of your life is what you were going to stay. And there was no upward mobility. Um, and so there was, there was no kind of movement or trajectory. You had to stay with your own people. Brennan Manning in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, says this. In the first century Palestinian Judaism, the class system was enforced rigorously. It was legally forbidden to mingle with sinners who were outside the law. Table fellowship with beggars, tax collectors, and prostitutes was a religious, social, and cultural taboo. So, like, here's the thing. The, Jesus is having dinner with, with these tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, come up to Jesus' disciples and said, Hey, what is your rabbi doing by eating with these people? Because the religious leaders of the day had determined that the tax collectors and this group of sinners that would normally kind of be together, like they are without, they are excluded from their presence. The religious leaders were very concerned about not becoming unclean, not becoming uh, kind of stained by the presence of sinful people. Jesus gives us a different thing. He does not play the class system game. In fact, you know, like if you think about it, um, Jesus would have been totally at home um, in a dinner setting with Rose's family on Titanic. Like first class, nice tuxedo. Jesus would have put on his tuxedo and he would have been dapper, y'all. He would have had that drip young people. Jesus would have had that drip. He would have been good. Like he would have been totally fine with that kind of a setting. Now, Jesus does not appreciate people who are self-consumed with themselves. They're self-righteous. He's not cool with that. And there's plenty of people at that table who are like that, right? So he would have had some, some, some debate. He would have had some conversation because of all the gossip and all the uh, pretension that was at that table. But Jesus would have been okay with being around those people, but he would have definitely called out their pretension in the process. But in the same way, Jesus would have also been okay with being at the third class, um, at the, at the party and the dancing at the pub at Titanic as well. Like he would have gotten up there and done a little thing, you know, and all that stuff. I'm sure Jesus would have been life of the party. Right. And I'm sure like when when the guys are having the the arm wrestling competition and Rose comes over and says, you think you're big tough men? Grabs a cigarette, takes a takes a puff and drinks one of the dude's beer. And like she's so, so gangster at this time. And then she's like, you think you're big tough men? Well, I would like to see you do this. And she does a little ballerina thing. It's on her tippy toes. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. I'm sure Jesus would have been like, amen, sister. You tell him. Right. Because Jesus would have been good with parties, by the way. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. And what did he do? He turned water into what? Wine. Jesus liked a party, y'all. <laughs> the good stuff, too. Gave the good stuff at the end. Anyway, so Jesus is cool. Like he doesn't, he doesn't get hung up on these categories and barriers that we create that we're supposed to be okay with these people. We're not supposed to be okay with these people. Jesus doesn't play that game. In fact, like if you wanted to go with Jesus to dinner or to lunch, like he'd go, he'd be cool. Waffle house. He'd be good. Anybody else like waffle house? Like, amen. It's good food, greasy. I know, but like, it's good. And you, you might get a, some entertainment while you're at waffle house. Like you just might, right? Whether it be from the workers or the customers or both, like you, it just, it's, it's a whole experience. 
right? If you haven't been to Waffle House in a minute, you should go, right? Because Jesus would be totally good with it. Um, in, in the same way, like if you wanted to be a little bit more classy and go to Applebee's, he'd be cool with that too. Like Applebee's, like some of you are like, that is my place. And some of you are like, huh, huh, right? It's Applebee's. But he'd be cool with going to Applebee's with you. He just wouldn't get the steak. Because it's Applebee's steak. It ain't on that level. Instead, he would take you to Ruth's Chris, right? He'd be cool with that as well. Can I get a amen, amen, right? The filet mignon, medium rare, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory, right? Jesus would be cool with any of that. Like Jesus doesn't play the game of, oh, this is how that person is, so I don't be around them. No, he, he doesn't play that game, but a lot of us do. A lot of us play that game with whether we, we accept someone into our life. A lot of us play that game whether or not we believe we're worthy to be in the presence of someone else. And we even do that with God too. Because some of us are like those tax collectors and sinners. We've got a past. We've got some things we regret in our past. We've got some stuff that we've done that seems to be like a a noose around our neck that our past really isn't our past because it keeps tripping us up in the present. Some of us know what it's like to be excluded. Some of us know what it's like to exclude ourselves because we don't feel worthy. See, Jesus understands that like the millennium falcon being pulled toward the death star by a tractor beam, all people are pulled toward selfishness, tribalism, and apathy. Like left to our own demise, Left to our own kind of strategy, all of us kind of get pulled. And we can't, sometimes we can't help it. Get pulled towards selfishness, tribalism, and apathy. Like we we turn in, turn ourselves selfish. We we start staying with our own kind. These are the kinds of people I'll be with. These are the people I won't. These are the kind of people I accept. These are the people I don't. Even though I know Jesus calls me to love people, but I'll love them from a distance. But I really won't love them at all. And then we get apathetic where we're just content with sitting in the same stuff we've always sat in. We're content with things being the way that they are. And we just say things like, it is what it is. That's just how things are. But Jesus comes in and he's doing something different. Because he is shattering the kind of... uh, categories and boundaries that have been made in the first century Jewish system to where religious leaders don't go to be with the people who need God the most. And that's what Jesus' point is. The, the healthy don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And so you're asking Jesus, why, why does he go and be with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he go to the places of darkness? Why does he go to the places and hang out with the people that good church people don't go and hang out with and go to? Why does he do that? It's because he's playing a different game. He is focused on loving every single person to the fullness. Like, you're not excluded from the grace of God. Like, maybe some of you, um, you you either have said this or you've thought this or you've got somebody in your life who have said this or thought this that, like, you you started to believe for one day and maybe you don't believe it now or maybe you find yourself um, in this room today and, and you're worried that the roof might cave in because you're here. That'd be like, I just don't know because of what I've done. I don't know that the Lord would accept me if, if you knew what I did 
two hours ago, if you knew what I did two days ago, if you knew what I did two years ago or 20 years ago, then I don't know that the Lord would welcome me into his presence in Jesus. He's saying, I don't think you understand who I am. Because I'm the one who came for those kinds of people. If you're a sinner, then you've met the one prerequisite to receive God's grace. You're accepted. You're invited. It's a matter of whether or not you're going to join him. So, you know, Jesus walking down the street one day and Matthew's sitting in his tax booth and we don't know what kind of decisions he made that led him to decide that he was going to be a tax collector. Like it could be that he just kind of counted reality and like counted the cost and counted the values. Like, okay, Rome's powerful. My people are not. Um, I want to provide for my family. And I also would like to provide some security to them as well. Because I know that there's these zealots, which Simon, one of the disciples, Simon the Zealot, was one of the zealots. And they wanted to overthrow Rome. Um, So Matthew knew, like maybe, that anything could pop off at any point in time. And if I'm on the side of the victors, then that's going to work out for me. If I'm on the side of the ones who are defeated, like I, that's not going to work out for me or my family. So Matthew might have decided, like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to call a spade a spade, and I'm going to, I'm going to go with the Romans, and maybe he got a pay increase, maybe whatever. Like we don't know. We don't know if he was like satisfied with his decision as he's sitting there at the tax booth. Tax booth. We don't know what what was going on in his life. We don't know what was going on in his mind. But we do know that when Jesus walked up to him <laughs> and said, "Follow me." He got on up, left his job, and followed Jesus. I mean, can you imagine being the chief tax collector and one of your tax collectors leaves his booth? You're losing money that day. I'm sure Matthew didn't call up his buddy and say, hey, can you cover my shift? I'm going to go follow this rabbi. We don't see that. Matthew just got up and went through a party at his house, invited Jesus, and then we see what happens. So Matthew just got up, and, and here's the thing. Jesus was a rabbi. He was known as a rabbi, which means teacher. And it was typical for first century rabbis to call people to follow them. They, it was normal. So a disciple of, of a rabbi was typically chosen because they were smart, because they had it going on. They were all that and the bag of hot Cheetos, okay? Like they, they, they were... Rabbis, if they wanted to rise through the ranks, rabbis would choose disciples who were smart, who were bright, because a disciple was a representative of their rabbi. And Jesus, (laughs) he chooses tax collectors, he chooses fishermen, he chooses zealots. Uh, Acts calls them, the disciples, unschooled ordinary men. That wasn't a compliment. At all. These are the guys that everyone would have been like, oh, that's, that's a dude. Nothing special about him. But Jesus calls him to follow him, and Matthew's life begins to change. So Jesus goes to Matthew's house. Matthew invites all his friends, and Jesus eats with sinners. In the first century, to have a meal with someone, this was like kind of like it is today, but a lot more to a different degree, um, to a different level. If you were in the first century and someone invited you to have a meal with them, they were saying, hey, won't you be my friend? Not neighbor, but you know. <laughs> won't you be? I just, yeah. So this is like, hey, won't you be my friend? Like, let's be friends. 
Let's, let's like, let's walk together. Let's, let's get to know each other. Let, I, I want to be around you. I, I, I'm interested in getting to know you on a friendship level. This was not an acquaintance thing. This was a, hey, I want to go about life with you. This was an intimate situation to have a meal with someone in the first century. And so Jesus eats with people he shouldn't have been eating with according to the religious leaders of the day. These are people who, I mean, they probably were the people who had betrayed other people. These are the people who were dishonest at times. These are the people who might have struggled with addiction. These are the people who might have had quite a bit of sexual immorality in their past and in their present. These are people who might have hurt other people. These are people who uh, had greed and selfishness. These are people who had pride and arrogance. These are people who may even had a lot of unforgiveness in their heart. And yet, they were having a meal with Jesus. And this is the thing, people who were nothing like Jesus, they liked Jesus. There was something about him that they were drawn to him. And they had a meal with him. And Jesus got criticized for it. You know, th- these kinds of people that Jesus is having this meal with are people like you, like me. People who have a past. People who have some sin in our lives. People who are still struggling when they're having a meal with Jesus. People whose life, they weren't all nice and curated and filtered like they are on social media. They had messes. They had struggles. They probably dealt with a lot of shame. They probably dealt with a lot of guilt. They probably wrestled with this voice in their head that constantly said, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. Whenever they find out about who you really are, they're just going to leave you. Whenever they find out what you've done in your life, they're going to want nothing to do with you. Whenever you show your true colors because you always kind of hold back a little bit, whenever you show who you really are, they'll start to step back and away from you. And that friendship will be all gone. These are people like you and me. And aren't you so glad that Jesus decided to come for the people like that? And not just for the people who have it all figured out and feel like they are righteous in and of themselves. These are the kinds of people that Jesus invited into a relationship with. You know, we need Matthew's story in our lives. We need Matthew's story. We need to be reminded that no matter how far you've gone, no matter how much stuff you've done, no matter how many uh, people who have uh, insulted you and persecuted you and gotten hateful with you, no matter how many people you've hurt and, and, and frustrated and, and, and were, were mean to, no matter how many of those things exist in your life, that you are not too far from the grace of God. We need Matthew's story in our lives. Like some of us, you know, you, 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 you're, you're someone who, who betrayed someone. Like the devil wants you to, to believe that you are not just someone who betrayed someone one day, but you are a betrayer. Like that is who you are. But I want to remind you that, that we have this, this account in the scriptures of a man named Peter. 
And even though Peter denied Jesus three times and said, I don't know that man, I don't know that man, I don't know that man, that Jesus sought him out when he was in the midst of his shame and pursued him and said, hey, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And invited him back into the mission that Jesus was calling him into and said, feed my sheep. Uh, Like some of us, we believe that because of our past, we don't have the the potential to be in a relationship with God, not like other people, because because of what we've done is too 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 much. The devil wants you to believe that. And yet I tell you about the man named Paul, who was walking around searching for Christians to kill. And yet when he was walking to Damascus on an everyday just trip down the road, God blinded him and then made him see again and then called him to surrender to Jesus and then used them to plant churches all across the world of which we are a product of because Paul was faithful to the calling that Jesus gave him even though his past was full of sin. Like, like some of us, we, we've, we've bought into the lie that because I've struggled with depression, I've struggled with being overwhelmed, I've struggled with anxiety, that I'm not able to do what God's called me to do. But I want to remind you about Elijah. Elijah had a spiritual high and he was going to battle against the prophets of Baal. And, and God delivered, uh, delivered Elijah in that moment and did what he called him to do. And, and Elijah was shown to be glorifying to God because God showed up in that moment and Baal, uh, the, the false god of Baal and all the prophets were consumed because of the wrath of God and the glory of God. And then Elijah in that moment, runs away because he was threatened by uh, by a queen and runs away after he was being so courageous and now he's cowering in the wilderness and, and wanting God to just kill him. Have you ever been in a spot where you just thought that maybe, like maybe you didn't think about it so much because it scared you, but have you ever thought that maybe life would be better for other people? Maybe life would be easier for other people if you just weren't there. Have you ever gotten to a point where you just thought like this life is so difficult and so frustrating and so scary that you just thought like it'd be better, it'd be easier if I just weren't here. That's what Elijah was doing. And God met him in that and called him to follow him again. God didn't run away from him when he got ugly. God didn't run away from him when Elijah showed him his mess. God drew near to him. And called him to come with me. You go do this. I've got something for you to do. It could be that you've struggled. Not because of something you've done necessarily. But because of something that's been done to you. You've been betrayed. You've been hurt by the people who are supposed to love you the most. You've been, you've been plagued by the, the relationships that were supposed to be strong. That were supposed to be uplifting. The, the ones that were supposed to be there for you. No matter what you went through. And they were the ones who betrayed you. And I want to remind you, like, the, the, the enemy wants you to believe that you're just not a person worth loving. You're not a person worth pursuing. But I want to tell you about Joseph. Because Joseph had some brothers who decided, you know what, I don't like you, I hate you, and I want you out of our family. And his brothers sold him into slavery. And Joseph spent time in slavery in Egypt and imprisoned in Egypt. And then at the end of the day, um, Joseph was raised up by God to deliver the very people who 
who sold him into slavery to do for them what they weren't willing to do for him. And he gave him grace. And Joseph had a different picture of how his past was framed by the goodness of God. He, he told his brothers, this is in the book of Genesis, Joseph told his brothers, hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Like you, you think you sent me to Egypt, but God sent me here because for this very moment that I'm able to rescue you all from your hunger. Like when, when you understand that no matter what is in your past, no matter what you've been through, that God wants to take that and change it into something that becomes a story of his grace, everything changes. Like, like some of us, we might feel that like your past might feel like a noose of shame, but Jesus transformed that noose into a story of his grace. Like you might feel like your past, when you think about the things you've been through, the things you've gone through, the things you've done, the things that have been done to you, when you think about that, it might still creep up into your present. And that's why this is so frustrating because even though it happened in your past, it continues to haunt you in your present. Like that noose that goes around your neck, your noose, your past might feel like a noose of shame, but Jesus has transformed that noose into a story of his grace. It's no longer captured around your neck anymore because of the grace of God. Because he has the power to welcome you into his presence, to shower you with mercy, to change your very heart, and then to give you the ability to be merciful like your king is merciful to you. This is what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. He tells this to the religious leaders, and I think he is wanting us to receive this too. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What does that mean? The Jews were used to, okay, if I sin, I bring God a sin offering. If, if we as a people turn our back on him, then we bring him an offering. We bring him a sacrifice. We bring him something to atone for our sins. And yet, if you live that kind of a life, you recognize that I got to bring sacrifices every day because I'm a mess. I'm a mess. And the interesting thing is Jesus is quoting from the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter six, verse six, when he says, I want you to learn what this means. I desire that word, those, that phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting from the book of Hosea and Hosea is one of the most beautiful and amazing and, and like just wild stories. I mean, if God was your preacher, and he did this sermon illustration, he would get fired. Because basically what God did is he's told Hosea, it'd be like the preacher telling the elder, hey, go and marry this prostitute because I need it for a sermon illustration. So God calls Hosea to marry Gomer, who was a prostitute, because he wanted to show the Israelite people just how in love with them he is. Because God uh, would tell Hosea, okay, uh, Hosea's married to Gomer. She, she's a prostitute. She's got that kind of a lifestyle. Well, 
She continues in that lifestyle, continues in that lifestyle, turns her back on her husband, turns her back on her husband, sleeps with other men, continues to do that over and over again. And Hosea is like, this is driving me crazy. Like, what am I supposed to do? And God continues to tell him, you go back to her. You call her back to yourself. Because God is showing them that, hey, Israel, Jews, uh, all people, you're Gomer. You're Gomer. You're the ones who continue to go to other gods, go to idols like money, like your job, like your own kind of achievements. And you go to that for your own kind of uh, worship. You, go, you worship at yourself, at the altar of yourself. You continue to forsake me, and yet I continue to pursue you. When are you going to get it through your head that I love you, that I'm worth coming to? When are you going to stop going your own way and come and receive comfort in my embrace. That is the, the story of Hosea. And Jesus quotes it to these religious leaders who would have known what he was quoting and would have been reminded of that story. Learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus shows us that his heart is for mercifully ministering to sinners. Mercifully ministering to sinners. That's what Jesus wants to do. And we should all be so grateful because you and I are the object of that mercy. We're the ones he's showering that mercy upon. We're the ones he's, call, he's coming to minister to. And then he doesn't stop there, but he calls us to learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to be loving to him and to people, especially those who seem like they're too far gone. Especially those who struggle. Especially those whose lives are just a mess. That maybe it's not out on the open, but under the surface it's there. And so every person you come across, every person I come across, is such an important reminder. We are called to shower mercy upon them. Why? Because God showered mercy upon us. When we didn't deserve it. And we should be so glad that he did because that's changed everything. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27 to 31 says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout that whole area. I just would imagine that for the vast majority of us, maybe all of us in this room, and maybe those on the stream, uh, we don't suffer from being blind. But I do know what is true about me, it's probably true about you, is that Jesus still opens our eyes, even if we're not blind, to see better, to see things that we weren't seeing before. To see that the past we've lived, while it still happened, while what happened to you still happened to you, while what you did, you still did, while those decisions were made either by you or someone else, it's there, 
But God gives us the strength, gives us the gift to be able to see things with new eyes. And I just imagine like this is something really important for all, all of us to do is when you look at your past, what do you see? Do you look at it through the lens of the goodness of God? Or do you look at it through the lens of what the evil one wants you to see? Like when you start to believe and start to see, okay, I know the scriptures say that God is working out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. What if we started to see our past through that lens? That even though what we went through is not something we would ever wish upon anyone, that even though the pain was so great and we still feel it sometimes, that even though when we get that, that, that scent in our nose, we are, we are taken back to that moment of deep shame, of deep regret, of deep pain. What if we started to see that past through the lens of the goodness of God and we started to see, okay, Lord, what do you want me to learn from this? Who do you want me to minister to because of this? How do you want to take my story and change it into a story of grace and love? And victory in the name of Jesus. You know, part of it changes when we start to change what we focus on and who we go to for strength. One of the groups I really enjoy listening to is called Beautiful Eulogy. They have a song called Omnipotent. And here are some of the lyrics from uh, part of their song. He says, I'm constantly fighting this feeling of failing as a father. Any dads ever been there? I'm constantly fighting this feeling of failing as a father and this feeling of falling short as a husband, this sort of never measuring up. Of course, it's all in my mind. It's just an expression of my pride. Yeah, I get it, but it's still hard for me to admit it sometimes. I get so tired of taking refuge in my own strength while standing with the weight of my insecurities on my back until my bones break. It won't make a difference to my situation as a whole whether I tend to hold it together for the moment or pretend to be in control. God, mold me into a man who holds fast to your everlasting hands. Give me the strength that I need to get past my circumstances. God, rescue me. Make my desperate attempts cause me to confess my dependence. And may the depths of, the weak, of my weakness make strength perfected. Almighty God, omnipotent. Omnipotent means all-powerful. Almighty God, omnipotent. You're my confidence. You're my confidence. I am so convinced. You hold me, hold me in my helplessness. You're my confidence. You're my confidence. I am so convinced. Here's the truth, friends. Jesus hasn't excluded you. He sent you the invitation. The question is whether or not you decide to show up. Where you you bring him your past, you bring him your present, you bring him the future you're worried about, you bring him the struggles you're in, and you ask him to do something that only he can do. And he'll ask you, do you believe I can do it? Do you believe I can do it? And he's inviting you to show your faith and say, yes, I believe you can do it. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Spend some time this week. Spend some time right now thinking about your past, thinking about what you've been through, thinking about what you've gone through, and ask the Lord, okay, how are you, how are you wanting to sh- change the way I see what I've been through and what I've gone through and what I'm going through right now through the lens of the goodness of God? How, how can I change that? And here's what I would encourage you to do. Give Jesus your past. Let him re, rework that past in light of the power of God. Then let him work in you and through you to mercifully minister to people around you. Because Jesus doesn't just save us and that's it. He saves us and calls us to join in the work he's doing. 
He didn't just mercifully minister to you so that you would be mercifully ministered to. He mercifully ministered to you so you would mercifully minister to them. And so that's our decision. That's what Matthew did. He, he gave Jesus a story and, and Jesus transformed it in a story of grace. He gave his past to Jesus. That's what Matthew did. And I would encourage you to do it too. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you for being the one who can take anything and everything that we've ever been through and you can rework it, reshape it. You can heal us from the inside out and then our greatest messes become our testimonies. God, uh, for, for those of us in this room who are actively struggling with something, whether it be relational, whether it be uh, just a, a sin that is held on to us, whether it be uh, just fears about the future, whether it be shame about the past. God, I pray that you would, you would take our hearts and you would minister to us mercifully. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us into this week and help us to be the people you've called us to be, to be people of grace, to be people of mercy, to be people who can walk in freedom and courage and to believe what you've said about us, not what the enemy says about us. God, may we be the people who mercifully minister and, and include others around us, no matter what they look like, no matter how they act, no matter what they talk like, and no matter what words they use. God, I pray that we would be those kinds of people, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. May we be that. We need you, though. We need you to lead us in it. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. And church, if you agree, you said, amen. You guys have a great week. Thanks for listening to this podcast by First Church of Christ in Bluffton, Indiana. For more information, visit FCCFamily.com.